You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello. In this podcast, I am talking to the fabulous Jennifer Gaudiani again from the Gaudiani Clinic. And today, well, it was yesterday, but today you're going to hear us talk about hormones. And um, we talk about all sorts of interesting and awkward things like sex and periods and erections. (laughs) So um, contrary to what seems to be common opinion is that hormones affect both men and women and eating disorders affect both men and women as well. Malnutrition affects both men and women. So this podcast here on hormones and eating disorders is not just about women. It's about men as well because men get eating disorders and men also have hormones. If you're squeamish and you don't want to hear the word erection or period, then you don't have to listen to this one. But I suggest that you do because if you have an eating disorder or if you love someone who has an eating disorder or care for someone who has an eating disorder, then these things will affect them and they will also, in a roundabout way, probably affect you as well. So here we go, hormones with Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani. We could start talking about hormones in the the classic what happens when you become malnourished to your hormones overall, just some of the basics. And then we could maybe move on to the incredible variety of hormonal things that can happen just to people, regardless of whether they've got eating disorders. And, and you know, it's always important to remember that anything that can happen to a human can happen to a human recovering from their eating disorder regardless of whether it's related or not. Um, And we could make sure that we talk not only about sex hormones, but also about thyroid hormone. Right. Um, Great. Maybe cortisol, stress hormone. Yep. And so should we we kick it off that way? Yes, let's go. Good. When we become malnourished, my favorite concept of the cave person brain kicks in. And with regards to hormones, sex hormones, let's start with, it thinks to itself, right, my mammal is in famine. Clearly, this is not a good time for my mammal to be calorically distracted by sex drive, interest in a partner, having sex, or making babies. So in order to spare rare calories... Let me take the hypothalamus and roll it back in time in the brain to pre-adolescence. It's really clever in doing that because our hormone levels, uh, people of all genders, drop to pre-adolescence in the course of restriction of calories. And the degree to which that happens is completely dependent upon the individual. It's a bell curve. Some people's sex hormones stay normal as can be until they've been malnourished for quite some time and might even be at a very low weight. And some people's sex hormones don't kick back in until they've been beautifully nourished and at a lovely weight for a long period of time. And both ends are quite dismaying to patients Mm. and their eating disorder finds ways of tormenting them somewhat regardless of which end of the spectrum they're on. What happens when the hypothalamus rolls back in time is that it stops sending the messages to the ovaries of the testicles to create estrogen and testosterone. Functionally, for females, 
that means that periods may stutter and stop and sex drive goes away. If somebody is continuing to engage sexually, it may be harder physically to become aroused or to have an orgasm or to enjoy the act of sex for complicated reasons, not just medical hormonal ones. And outside of sex itself, not having enough estrogen means also that the tissues of the vagina become more fragile. And so people can be more prone to pain, just generally pelvic pain, pain with peeing, um, just sort of general pelvic pain can become more prominent when those estrogen levels are low. For males, as the testosterone falls, it's really important for doctors to ask, when did you notice that your sex drive changed? Because for a lot of males, they'll really know. At exactly this body weight, I stopped having as many spontaneous morning erections, I stopped thinking about sex as often, or I wasn't able to perform sexually when I felt it was appropriate to. And a lot of doctors can feel embarrassed to ask those questions because this is a weird country when it comes to sex right. and bodies. And we're for some reason so awkward about talking about that most vital of functions. And so men are quite observant with that sort of thing then. Yeah, my experience is they really know which is not to say that they necessarily lament, either males or females, the loss of some of those things. In fact, many of the things that have to do with possessing an adult body that can do adult body things can be deeply intertwined with the maintenance of the eating disorder. And as an internist, I stay in scope of practice, but I can at least hold space for the awareness that whether or not somebody has a history of sexual trauma whether they are questioning their gender identity, whether they are questioning or having questioned their sexual orientation, all of these things can play in when it comes to changing food and changing sex hormones. Yeah, because the eating disorder will use anything, really. It makes life easier, makes that side of life easier. That's right. That's right. So... We can't be assumptive as doctors and imagine that the one thing that a woman wants more than anything else is to regain her period, or that the one thing that a male wants more than anything else is to be able to have normal morning erections again, maybe the last thing they want. We have to ask. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was never wild about the idea of regaining my period, to be quite honest. Yeah, many aren't. In fact... I know that many of my patients who's, who are female, whose eating disorders started in adolescence, m may have had triggers around, I heard you have to have a certain body fat percentage to begin having a period, and oh my goodness, I just started menstruating. What does that mean about my body? Is it wrong in some way? Am I okay with this? So regaining a period may be really complicated for people. But at some point, if somebody's engaged in the recovery process, those sex hormones will come back online. It's really important to know because I've done a lot of reviewing of journal articles on the topic of menstrual resumption that periods and sex drive come back at a totally wide array 
of body shapes and sizes and levels of nutrition. And if somebody's really malnourished, deep in their eating disorder and happens to get their period, woo, <laughs> watch out because that's going to be so triggering. By the same token, as I said, somebody may have been in, in a lovely state of physical recovery for quite a period of time, as it were, and not have their menstrual cycle return. And they may just wonder, you know, have I ruined my body? Have I done permanent damage? And go into that guilt shame spiral, which increases their risk of relapsing in behaviors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So my message to my patients is that each one is a fabulous individual and we've just got to learn what their body does. I can give them the medical literature behind it, but they're their own individual, they're party of one. And let's just see. And the consistent message remains the case, which is follow Hayes principles, follow health at every size principles, Nourish yourself adequately, joyfully, and without restrictions. Move according to your ability for joy and for whatever you wish to be doing physically in the world and attend to your mental health needs. And when you are doing that, everything that can fall into place in your uniquely, genetically individual body will do so. And anything that can't fall into place needs to be managed by a doctor, you know, and you to the extent that, that you're health goals are being attended to and not imposed upon you by a system. Right. So thyroid, if we just step aside to another hormone system for a moment, is really, really interesting. The thyroid typically um, is, well, so it's a gland that's located in the front of the neck um, and it produces thyroid hormone, which manages a lot of the enzymatic and metabolic processes in our body or it, or it influences them. So thyroid hormone influences heart rate and speed of digestion, level of energy, skin quality, hair quality, eyesight, nervousness, temperature. It, it has roots in all of those things. When somebody has autoimmune that is, the body attacks itself, low thyroid levels. Uh, that's often uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis is sort of the typical way that your thyroid attacks itself, and then it doesn't work anymore. But your brain is still sending call signs to it, like, hey, make thyroid hormone. Oh, we need to be a bit louder. Hey, hey, hey make thyroid hormone. And it does that through the TSH. So the brain makes more and more TSH and it asks the thyroid, hey, you're not responding. You're not responding. We're going to make more and more and more. So when people have hypothyroidism or low thyroid, their TSH is high and their actual thyroid level or T4 level is low. Mm -hmm. In addition, 95% of people who have actual autoimmune low thyroid have a positive anti-thyroid antibody or an anti-TPO antibody that can be measured in the blood. That will come into play in a moment. People with hypothyroidism or low thyroid ha are chilly, sluggish. They might gain weight, but as a haze provider, I don't pay attention to that part. They might have poor hair and skin quality. They will be constipated, and they might be a bit more depressed. 
Now, it just so happens those are the most nonspecific symptoms you can possibly have. And so the thyroid is often checked for a wide variety of circumstances in which it's actually functioning perfectly. But it's not unreasonable to check a thyroid level if somebody has some of those symptoms. Hyperthyroidism, when the thyroid is overactive, can result from any number of problems. But you'll find that because there's so much thyroid hormone in the body, the TSH level is low. It's like, woo, we've got plenty. We don't need to be calling for more. So the TSH is low and the T4 is high. In hyperthyroidism, people are hot, sweaty, anxious, jittery. They have a fast heart rate. They often lose weight and they may have diarrhea. And so if people have those symptoms, it's reasonable to check thyroid hormones for them. What can happen in those with significant malnutrition though, and significant malnutrition, you know what I'm going to say, can happen at any body shape and size, Thank you. Yes, is that the thyroid becomes stressed. And by stressed, I mean it knows that its body is physically sick. And so it can show thyroid levels that look a little bit like hypothyroidism or underactive thyroid. Um, and doctors can get fooled. So, you know, it's not just in the eating disorder world. When people are sick enough to go into intensive care for a critical pneumonia or after a severe car accident, their thyroid becomes stressed. And that stressed thyroid state is called sick euthyroid syndrome, U-E-U from the Greek for good. So thyroid is great. Brain is great. Thyroid is great. Body is stressed. Thyroid sort of reacts. But it doesn't need treatment except to treat the whole body. And so the risk here, and I've seen it countless times, is that when someone is malnourished, and you know this country's weight stigma is off the charts, so anytime someone's weight is changing in any way, someone checks the thyroid hormone level, and if it's just a bit off, as it turns out from sick euthyroid syndrome, a doctor might well-meaningly put someone on thyroid medication. Here's the deal. If you have sick euthyroid syndrome, you're not going to have that antibody. So on any patient of mine who's ever been diagnosed with an underactive thyroid, I check the antibody because unless that's positive, they probably never had a thyroid problem at all. They had a malnutrition problem. Mm -hmm. They had an eating disorder problem. They had a stressed body problem. The risk of putting someone on thyroid medicine when they don't medically need it is that it makes bone density loss worse. It can overdrive the metabolism, which can make it a drug of abuse, unfortunately, and it can cause cardiac problems. So physicians have underserved those with eating disorders by misdiagnosing people with underactive thyroid when in fact they've got sick euthyroid syndrome, we lose the opportunity to say, oh, what amazing biofeedback this is. Look, you're far from fine. Your, your eating disorder is telling you you're not sick enough. You're fine. But look, your thyroid is stressed. You are worthy of recovery. You are worthy of moving forward towards what your team wants you to do. I'm pretty passionate about the thyroid piece. And it's worth mentioning because I've heard some wacky pseudoscientific stuff out there about how people with thyroid disease should 
restrict these 16 different food groups because they're terrible for the thyroid. This couldn't be more bullshit. That's just not true. <laughs> that is not scientific. There is no reason to restrict any kind of food groups in the setting of thyroid problems, except in the cases where you don't want to take in you know, vast quantities of iodine while you're getting true thyroid disease treated. That's it, though. That is it. Wow. Because, yeah, I've also heard people being told not to eat specific categories of food because of a thyroid problem. Yeah. People with anorexia. Yeah. (laughs) Ouch. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, the eating disorder loves nothing more than for a doctor to suggest restriction. Oh, it's gold dust. Absolutely. Doesn't matter what mom or anyone else says after that. Once a doctor said it, it yeah, may as well be written in stone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we must avoid pseudoscience when it comes to food in our bodies at all costs. Um, so I think then it's worth mentioning cortisol. Cortisol is the stress hormone that we all produce. Uh, cortisol gets a bad rap. But cortisol, we can't live without it. Uh, The adrenal glands sit like little beanie caps on top of our kidneys, and they produce a lot of really important hormones in our bodies. Cortisol is our stress hormone. So if um, if I get really sick, if I get a terrible cold, my cortisol is going to rise to support my body. It's going to keep my heart rate up. It's going to keep my blood pressure up. It's going to really support my body while it goes through its sickness, and then it's going to come back down. Cortisol gets a bad rap because it's a steroid. It's a natural steroid that we all produce. And high cortisol levels are markers of high chronic physiologic stress. Well, it's not surprising to learn that those with chronic malnutrition of all shapes and sizes are going to have high cortisol levels because, again, their cave person brain knows this is a profoundly stressed mammal. It's not getting its energy needs met. So the cortisol levels are high. As a wonderful incentive for patients who have a hard time resting themselves when their eating disorder says you haven't checked off all 15 boxes on your list, you're not allowed to sit and put your feet up and do something just for yourself, I will remind them that good rest and good sleep both drop the cortisol level. It's your body saying, ah, thank you for taking care of me. I am a stressed mammal, and what I need is some rest. There's a lot of pseudoscience out there about adrenal fatigue. I'm not a functional medicine doctor. I'm a Western medical doctor, and so I want to be cautious in not speaking too disparagingly about systems of medicine that I have not trained in and I haven't assessed what they use for data. But from a Western medical perspective, adrenal fatigue doesn't exist. If you've stopped making cortisol because your adrenals have kicked out, you are critically ill and probably have something called Addison's disease. And you rapidly go into shock and you are in the hospital and they diagnose it and they begin giving you the medicine you need to replace it, which is usually a a variety of steroids. If you overproduce cortisol because of a tumor, 
you might have Cushing's disease and then you've got too much cortisol production. And that's a separate medical thing that really doesn't often coincide with eating disorders. It might because anybody could get Cushing's. But adrenal fatigue and now follow my bone broth diet and my, you know, elimination diet and buy the personally compounded $300 a week supplements that only my clinic makes. Nope. Nope. Let's look at the whole human. If this whole human has an eating disorder or disordered eating, regardless of body shape or size, they don't need a non-scientific so-called medical professional telling them to further restrict their food and further restrict their life. They need an eating disorder expert team to help them learn how to nourish themselves and rest themselves and accommodate their medical and mental health needs. Interestingly, relatively early in the process of nourishing, of refeeding or nutritional rehabilitation, the cortisol levels fall to normal. So it's really good to know it's a very sensitive hormone. Even if you just begin starting to take care of yourself, your body's like, oh, thank you very much, which doesn't mean your process is done. But it does mean that it's not like you're going to be sitting around with rampantly high cortisol levels for weeks and months into refeeding. Your body, as usual, our bodies are so much smarter than we are. They've got it. Got to stop wrangling them. Yeah, they've got it. That's for sure. <laughs> got this. So what questions have come up from your perspective about people who have funny hormone problems, unusual ones that doctors can't diagnose that sort of keep them in their eating disorder? When you have um, an eating disorder such as anorexia, your brain just filters, out, filters in um, and exaggerates any information that could indicate you should restrict this food. So even if you're reading on a forum like, oh, you know, XXX and I have this thyroid problem and my doctor or not even my doctor but some person told me that I should not eat whatever it is your your brain will pick up on that and exaggerate that and then it's 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 a rule before um even it doesn't even take a doctor to have said it the most I think the the period thing it's like <laughs> it, it I, I think that, that some people do get their periods back or don't even lose their periods at low weights and then it's just like banging your head against a wall to say, well, that doesn't mean that you've recovered. It, <laughs> or even if your period comes back, this, this is a sign we're on the right path. Let's keep going. It does not mean job done all over. <laughs> so right. And I think that that's, I, th I honestly think from my perspective, that's the one that trips people up the most. And even people who are in the um, process of nutritional rehabilitation will say like right at the beginning, I'm already scared of getting my period because I'm already scared that when I get my period, my eating disorder is going to say that that's done and that I won't be able to get over that or I'm going to go to pieces when I get my period. Um, so people are very aware of that. And even that awareness doesn't stop necessarily that effect, them having that effect on them. Um, and then I think that the, the other conflicting information that I, I seem to hear about a lot is... Um, certain uh, groups, let's um, say like um, fruitarians, who who say things like, well, actually, it's healthy not to have your period mm. because this means that, you know, like healthy people don't need periods, actually. It's actually a little bit of an inconvenience. And, and if you structure your diet right, i.e. only eat fruit and vegetables, 
then you won't have a period, and that means you're healthier. Which is, I don't even really understand how the logic works, but people buy it. And of course, an eating disorder will pick up that data and say, filter that and say, this is the correct data, no matter how whack it sounds. Wow, yeah. Let me just say right here from this doctor that that is not true, period. This is not a matter of sort of, well, everybody can have their own opinion. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) That is just not accurate. Uh, and, and that's a, ooh, yeah, an eating disorder would love to run with that one. I think it's worth saying that putting someone, putting a female on the pill in order to jumpstart her period when she's still malnourished, according to her body, and hasn't resumed it, or when she's weight restored but still hasn't started her period is not scientific either. So, and all of the medical it's so data. worrying, though, because I can, I can almost almost finish that story. Someone will email me saying, yeah, you know, when I was 15, and I didn't have my periods, my eating disorder was 13, and then I can almost finish the sentence, and your doctor put you on the pill. Mm. It's so mm. rife, and may, maybe more so in the UK than in the US, I'm not sure, but it just seems to be like the thing that they do. Yeah. And there's actually nothing wrong with the pill as an oral contraceptive, and for any other number of reasons, but in this particular clinical context, it's really inappropriate. And you're right, it's still rampant because it's being taught OBGYN still. But there's a lovely review by Misra et al. about state-of-the-art management of bone density and hormones in eating disorders in the internal, uh, in the National Journal of Eating Disorders. And it very clearly lays out that all of the studies that have been done on oral contraceptives in those with eating disorders, A, don't help bone density, and maybe we talk about bone density on a future podcast together. B, they can cause denial to surge because you're having a period once a month like everyone else, so you think you're not sick. Oh, yeah, that's, that was my problem, absolutely. Was it indeed interesting? Uh, and C, you're losing a valuable body resource, which is blood, once a month when your body has specifically tried to account for not wasting body resources while you're malnourished. You are forcing yourself to dump blood and to recreate it when your body was set up so beautifully to take that away from you while you're not able to lose that body resource. The fact is that anyone with a uterus and a vagina when put on oral contraceptives will build up a uterine lining and shed it It does not mean you're jump-starting a period. That's just forcing you to create a uterine lining and shed it as a menstrual cycle. What will jump-start your period is attending to you as a whole human being, which involves your nutritional, your mental, your physical health. That's what will jump-start the period. Mm -hmm. Anything else is nonsense. Nobody should be injected with anything. However, I'll say this, and if we do talk about bones at some point, I'll talk more about this. It's now evidence-based both for adolescents with anorexia nervosa and for elite athletes who don't have an eating disorder but have lack of periods called amenorrhea and bone density loss to use an estrogen patch at a low dose because somehow the transdermal or through the skin mechanism seems to work properly along with progesterone to protect the uterus. And that actually does help bones. It doesn't necessarily cause a period to happen. It might. It does not work as birth control. So that's, that's out. Um, 
but we're learning more and more about what our bodies need and how we can mitigate the damage that's done while someone does not have a period. Right. It's also worth mentioning that as far as a contraceptive mechanism, amenorrhea is not reliable. I like to say eggs happen. So if somebody <laughs> is sexually active and not using barrier protection with a male partner, they can anticipate getting pregnant if they are not using an IUD or some other yeah. form of birth control. Yeah. Eggs happen. So it's not, it's not birth control, right? Um, I think that the... The other thing that just sprang to mind is I often get asked, like, or I see people asking on Slack group, well, I've had anorexia now for 20 years. Is there any hope that my, my endocrine system can recover? 100% yes. Yep. To the extent that any female's endocrine system can normalize. There are some people out there who haven't had a day of an eating disorder in their life, and they have incredibly complicated endocrine systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So once again, someone with eating disorders is just a susceptible. If I fully nutritionally restore my body and I take care of myself and I rest and I move for joy, but not excessively, do I have as good a chance at having a normal endocrine system as anyone else? The answer is yes. No matter how long you've had it. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, it's amazing, really, if you think about it, isn't it? And I, I was complete, I was flawed that <laughs> my body really can work just as well as anybody else's and, and quite pleasantly surprised. And I was one of those who, I, I was, it took me a long time to get my period back. I had, I was, I was a good, full on good year past to have nutritionally rehabilitated. And I was actually feeling great. And I, I just kind of thought, I really thought it was never going to come back. And I'd almost just accepted that. And then one day there it was, and I was aghast. <laughs> so, mm. so we're all different and mine took a long time, but okay. So something that I think really, really surprises people when they are at, when they are, when they are in recovery and they're doing recovery and they are, they are nurturing themselves and they're eating is the the effect that the that that system gearing itself back up has on them because I was well, it was just before I was 30 that I my I, I got my periods back and I turned into a teenage brat and I was never a teenage mm. brat when I was a teenager I was <laughs> I, I didn't go through that as a teenager but I couldn't believe it <laughs> just and um so I think that that's, that's something that we talk about, oh, you know, your periods will come back and, and all of these things. And we talk about, oh, that system shut down. But as that system gears up again, things happen and, and things go all over the place. <laughs> it, can be, it can be kind of inconvenient, but also quite interesting to live through. That's such a great point, Tabitha. You're absolutely right. I've seen many of my patients who are among the most shame-sensitive humans you've ever met go through adolescence anywhere from their mid-20s to their mid-30s and mid-40s because their bodies have come back online and their sex hormones are back. Yikes! You know, not only are you dealing with body changes, but completely different ways of seeing the world and experiencing oh, yeah. your body. That is hard. We've got to hold space for that and normalize that. Yeah. It's also difficult because, well, at 29... 
um, you know, when you're, if you're 14, I think you can kind of talk to your friends about everyone else is going through puberty. Yeah. At 29, I didn't really feel that I could, oh, I'm going through puberty. Like it wasn't something, it just seemed so, I was, it was so behind everybody else. And, and also just even the logistics. I, I had never, I had never really dealt with sanitary protection. I, I, I hadn't really properly used sanitary protection. I was having to Google how to do this, yeah. this stuff. And, um, because I, I didn't really feel I had anybody that as a 29-year-old adult I could ask, well, so, okay, how do we do a tampon then? <laughs> just, just things like that. How do I work this thing? Yeah, that's so isolating. And it's easy, so easy to go back into shame mm-hmm. right away when, when you're feeling different in any way. Yeah, and it's also easy to go into, well, it was just so much easier when I didn't have this. But on the plus side of things, um, adults with anorexia don't necessarily say I miss having a sex drive and I can't say that I missed having a sex drive but I, I felt like I should miss not having a sex drive mm. I knew I was missing out on something even though if you really asked me do I care or not I would have said no I don't really care um, and and actually the plus point of going of, of having all of those things start to work again is having a sex drive can be really fun and nice yeah. and interesting um and so I, I think that that that's a really huge plus point that that I hadn't anticipated being a plus point because I hadn't felt like I'd missed it in the first place but we really sort of made it all worthwhile I think yeah our sexuality is certainly can be one of the miraculous things that our bodies do mm-hmm. yeah I think it's important to mention absence of periods and patients in larger bodies Yes, because it's not all about just malnutrition of all shapes and sizes, but it's also about patients in larger bodies, just broadly speaking, who, because of weight stigma in this country, are automatically assumed to have polycystic ovarian syndrome. That's really unfair. Again, it's a marker of unconscious bias by physicians to make a snap judgment based on an appearance. You know, you cannot know whether someone is well or unwell by the size or shape of their body, except I would argue in the case of significant underweight. Yeah. And those patients deserve just as thoughtful a workup without discussion of their body weight and goodness knows without recommendation to change the size or shape of their body as anybody else does. So I just want to make sure that that set of, of patients gets a shout out from this perspective. Yeah, and I think that it's it's even more difficult for, or, or sometimes might even feel impossible for them to advocate for themselves. If you're trying to say to your doctor, look, can you please take my weight out of the equation and, and um, look at the problem from an unbiased perspective? That's, that's a really difficult thing to be able to advocate for yourself for. That's absolutely right, because so many patients in larger bodies have come to severe harm at the hands of the medical system and physicians specifically. I'm learning a lot about the Hayes movement and about binge eating disorder and about the social justice issues that are wrapped up in in patients of larger body size. And I have come to understand myself as part of an oppressor class as a physician. But it's less hard for me than it's been for them. You know, it may sort of give me pause, but they've been actually harmed. So really, really have to think about, you know, how can we as an eating disorder community rally to and warmly embrace and actually provide appropriate nutritional, medical and mental health care for patients of all body sizes.
Amen. Thank you, Dr. Gaudiani. It's sad what she was saying there, and it's sad what we were talking about with the um, weight discrimination and lack of celebration of body diversity within the medical field, because we need our doctors. We love our doctors. Everybody needs a good doctor, especially a person who could be in a state of malnutrition and has an eating disorder. And one thing I just makes me feel so um, <laughs> relieved, I think is the word, that there are doctors like Dr. Gaudiani out there that I can no, I'm not going to tell somebody that restriction is the answer, regardless of their body size as well. Because people in all shapes and sizes are frequently told that restriction is the answer. And so many of us, when we're in recovery, we, we sort of know we need a doctor, but we can be fearful about going just because we, we also know that our doctor will probably tell us to restrict food of some sort. And so there can be this dilemma. I, I want to go to the doctor and I want to get help, but also I don't want to be triggered by my doctor. And that's really not okay. So thank God for doctors like Dr. Gaudiani, who are few and far between, but hopefully, hopefully that's changing, that we can actually rely on to treat us without telling us that restriction or reducing our body weight is the answer. I thought I'd elaborate a little bit in, on my personal experience with... Um, well, my menstrual cycle, just for anybody that's interested. If you're not, <laughs> feel free to turn off now. Um, so I was, was, I was late to develop through puberty. And um, I think I would have naturally had anorexia not um, sort of developed at age 17. I think I would have naturally actually started my period quite late, around 18, which was evidently what my body wanted to do. So I didn't go through periods or puberty at, at um, 13, 14, 15, like the majority of my friends did. I was, I was a bit behind. So as I mentioned, I hadn't really experienced puberty at all until I was, well, sort of around 29, which was an experience. It was a very interesting time for me. And I also went to the doctor around age 18, where I'd lost a large amount of weight, but my periods hadn't started. And um, I think my mother, I think she convinced me to go to the doctor. I was, I was very against going and seeing any doctors because they, well, I suspected that they'd tell me to eat more. And at that stage, I was um, very, very at the beginning stages of anorexia. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be told that. Um, so I went to the doctor though, because um, I was sort of, I wanted to start my period. That's what was normal. And that's what all my friends had. And I, I went to the doctor and um, she put me on the pill. She certainly didn't tell me to eat more. She put me on the pill. And um, I was one of those people that I, I went on the pill, but it didn't actually cause me to have periods, which is, I know is a bit odd. But um, so I didn't get periods even on the pill. I was on the pill for a very long time. And I don't even know why I kept taking it because I wasn't having periods. I think I just kept taking it because my doctor had told me to do that. And I thought that that was the right thing to do. And that as long as I was following my doctor's advice, I could not worry about the fact that I wasn't having periods because frankly, it was quite convenient not to. Once I got over the, well, everybody else is doing it sort of stage, I was, I was relatively happy not having a period. <laughs> mm. um, that's one less thing to worry about. But as I said, that meant that um, when I did actually start having periods at age 29, wow, that was a very new experience for me. I was quite at a loss. Not just things like, as I mentioned about the um, logistics of, well, gosh, I have to go and buy sanitary protection and how do I use this stuff? But 
it was just things like habitual things. I was not in the habit of taking sanitary protection with me or keeping it in the car. And I don't carry a handbag, so there's that. So it's not like I say I put it in my handbag and just always have it because I don't carry one. And um, I often got caught out, which it just adds to the annoyance and the frustration and um, the embarrassment, I guess, of having to say to Matt, oh crap, we need to go and find a shop, like right now. And he was always brilliant, but um, I'm a 29-year-old adult who isn't organized enough or in the habit of having tampons or sanitary towels with her at all times. So there was, there was that learning curve as well. Um, and then there was all the cramps and the discomforts and the bloatedness. Um, I also had to learn um, to, despite, I, I do get very bloated on my period. And um, I have to learn that despite, no matter how much I don't feel like eating, I have to make myself eat when I'm really bloated. But luckily, making myself eat when I don't want to is my scientific speciality, because that's how I recovered from anorexia. So that's a skill that I do have and I can do. But something I often talk to my clients about, like, okay, you're going to get bloated and you're probably going to feel like you really don't want to eat. But guess what? You don't get to not eat. You, of all the people in the world especially, have to eat despite the bloatedness, despite the cramps and despite whatever else you're feeling. And, um, you know, I, I, I often whine about having my period. And um, actually just last week, I was sitting on the couch, we were eating dinner. I was whining about feeling cramps and Matt just said well I'm really happy that you have your period and he often says something like that to me no matter how much I whine about it he always says that he's really thrilled that I have my period because me having my period also resulted in me having a sex drive and me being a much more normal person um, and a normal person does have hormonal fluctuations and now I'm one of them and I think that's something that we are both, regardless of my whining when it is that time of the month, we're both really happy about that. I think that probably due to psychotherapy, there's this perception of that all people with anorexia are these repressed little people who don't, you know, don't like sex, don't or the, or the actual reason that they're starving themselves is because they don't want to have sex, they don't want to be attractive. Whereas for many of us, it's, it's completely the other way around. We don't want to have sex and we don't have a sex drive because our bodies are in a state of malnutrition. And as Dr. G was talking about, when your body's in a state of malnutrition, sex is the last thing it's got time to think about. It's thinking about food the whole time, isn't it? It's that mental hunger going on. And um, so we, we're not all these, these repressed little people who don't want or don't like or have no interest in sex. It's just part of the illness. It's part of being in a state of malnutrition. And although I know that for people that have had some sort of sexual trauma, that can be convenient, shall we say, that they don't, that malnutrition reduces their interest in sex. But it doesn't mean it's healthy. And it doesn't mean that they too cannot recover fully and also recover an enjoyable and good and healthy sex life. Anyway, so... That was, that was my personal experience with loss of menstrual cycle, or it wasn't really a loss because I hadn't really started, but, and I guess starting my menstrual cycle as an adult. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, any, um, I'm going to do regular podcasts with Dr. Gaudiani. So if you have any questions for her, topics that you want covered, then you can email me at info at or you can tweet at me. Twitter handle is at love underscore that underscore. 
And if you want to find out more about the Gaudiani Clinic, there's lots of resources on um, the Gaudiani Clinic website, and that's www.gaudianiclinic.com. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes of this episode as well. So you can just click on that and find out more. Thanks for listening. Until next time, cheerio.